0: Yeah. Briefly again, why are we here? We are here because this is kind of the time that we come together before the primary worship service. This is the prelude to the primary worship service. This is the, the uh, opening act to the primary worship service. We're coming together to get, kind of settle down and to build up into the primary worship service over there. And that's what the Psalms of Ascent really kind of function as. In Old Testament Israel, the men would come together and they would be traveling along to their worship services in Jerusalem. Whether it would be the, the Feast of Passover or the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Booths. And they'd be singing these songs along the way. So we're going to use them as the same way and kind of see ourselves as these pilgrims that are doing this, this traveling throughout the week. But specifically during this time before we reach the primary worship service in an hour. And... We are taking a journey, taking a journey, and each one, each song on this journey is an ascension from the previous psalm. So once you finish the entire journey of 15, we've started in a low spot and we've ascended to the end. We're going to see that, especially in a few weeks when we get to Psalms 133 and 134. Those are very crescendo-like. They reach the very climax of all these. We'll see that in a couple weeks. Um, and so it's kind of helpful, because we are ascending, it's helpful to rehearse where we've been so far first we started in psalm 120 and the journey was that we were downtrodden we were separated from the people of god we were surrounded by a bunch of people who wanted war we were in meshach and Kedar on the opposite ends of israel and then you remind yourself in the next psalm that the help comes only through yahweh who is going to forever keep us and protect us then moving on to psalm 122 you rejoice at the arrival in jerusalem And while in Jerusalem, you pray for the peace of Jerusalem and the unity of Jerusalem. Moving on while you're there, you look upon the Lord with a longing gaze and you beg for his mercy and his relief upon us. Moving on past that, we move to celebrate God for his providence towards us and his guiding hand of protection. And after that, we're back extolling the glories of being physically and spiritually in Mount Zion and the blessed peace that exists there. Then last week, we first talked about holy laughter and the overflowing joy that comes from considering the great things that the Lord has done for us. And Psalm 126 moved into this brief movement that asks asking God for a flooding of God's blessings, especially upon those who weep and who mourn. And then last week, we finished up with Psalm 127. Psalm 127, is, remembers is one of two Psalms that was written by Solomon or is attributed to be written by Solomon, it was like classic Solomon. First, first half of it was a reading of, it sounded just like Ecclesiastes, and then the second half sounded just like something from Proverbs. The overall message of Psalm 127 was that all of life is vanity if the blessings of the Lord are not upon your efforts, whether this is in building a house, whether this is on vocational work, or whether this is in raising a family. So all of these things are just vanity if the blessing of the Lord is not upon these things, upon your efforts on these things. So that's where we've been. And I don't know about you guys, but I have been very blessed reading through the Psalms of Ascent and studying them. So let's, let's see what we've, what we've got for today. Today we're going to do Psalms 128 and 129. First of all, Psalm 128. If you turn there with me and read it with me, that's what it says. Psalm 128, a song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So to me, this psalm, it kind of sounds like a toast. Whenever you read it, it really does sound sound like a toast here. Um, I I can, you know, these are, most of these, whenever they're being sung, they're being sung by like groups of men. You know, the women and children, they could be along too, but the men were commanded to go up to these feasts. And whenever they're going, they're traveling and they, they're singing these songs. And I can I could just see, you know, some bearded, sandaled man raising his glass of wine right before Passover and say, here's to my friend Eleazar. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You will be blessed. Your wife will be a blessing to you, a fruitful vine. Your children will grow fast and strong and be beautiful and pleasant like olive shoots. May the Lord bless you with a long life. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. May you live long and see your grandchildren. Peace be upon Israel. And then everyone responds, hear, hear. Right? This, this kind of really does sound, to me, it sounds like a toast. Um, now, I might be reading too much into that there, admittedly. But I don't know, it just sounds, sounds like a toast to me. But even if it's, if it's not specifically a toast these songs definitely were sung as songs of encouragement for those who are ascending to worship in Zion. And they'd, they'd go back and forth and they'd sing them to each other. And that's kind of what it sounds like. You know, this man would sing this to this man and this man would sing it back to this man. And they, you know, it's they'd pronounce blessings upon each other. Um, and so in the same vein, whenever I was reading this, I was kind of reminded, you know, if you ever... Mr. TJ is not in here today, but if you ever ask Mr. TJ how he's doing, his response is always the same way. I'm blessed. What a great response, huh? Great response. And you know, all of us would, should be able to say the exact same thing. We agree with you, Mr. TJ. We're, we're blessed. Um, I meet time to time with Adam, too. Adam's not in here either. But any time that we leave, leave our meetings, the way that he always addresses me whenever we leave is, blessings, brother. And it's a great, a great um, benediction, right? Blessings. And this is this is kind of the same thing this psalm is is talking about. It's all about all about blessings. So if you if you count count the words like fruit, or well, or prosperity, um, which occur in here, you get or you get bless or its synonyms at least seven or eight times in these six short verses here. So you got seven or eight times of some blessings or blessed or bless or. Some sort of variation like like fruit or prosperity or or well or things like that. So seven or eight times in six verses. So you got this psalm is really all about blessings here. The title in the ESV says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. So we'll talk about that in a little bit too. But specifically, there are three very specific blessings mentioned in the psalm. So let's see if we we can identify them here. The first blessing is being able to enjoy the fruits of labor. So that's verse 2. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. The second blessing is a blessing of a happy and prosperous family. And the third blessing is the blessing of being able to enjoy worship in a corporate context. And so you'll notice something about all three of these blessings these blessings are rooted specifically as creation ordinances. So you we got we're saying again, you got the blessing of being able to enjoy the fruits of your labor. So work is a creation ordinance. Second blessing is a happy and prosperous family. The family is a creation ordinance. This third blessing is the blessing of being able to enjoy worship. Worship is still a creation ordinance. So you've got right here um, does everybody know what, I, what I'm saying, creation ordinance? Stuff that was established by God in the Garden of Eden at creation. Okay. There are things that God reveals later on after creation, but these creation ordinances are very basic foundations of what God establishes at creation. The family, worship, work, the Sabbath, all these things are creation ordinances. So each of the blessings here are pronounced are creation ordinances. So from the beginning of creation, these are three things that God has established that are good for humanity and are going to be good for humanity until the end of ages. Even before the fall, work was good. Enjoying the work was good. Family life was good. Enjoying the family life was good. Worshiping God was good. And enjoying that worship was good. So this psalm can serve as a reminder to this singing and worshiping community of how great things were, before sin came into the world. Because these are all rooted in creation ordinances. Blessed be you when you work. Blessed be you in your family life. Blessed be you when you worship. But it can also, so remind, it can remind us of how great things were before the fall, but it can also serve to remind us that God can still bestow his blessings upon us and make his face shine upon us while we are still sinners. So the most important part of the psalm is recorded in verses 1 and verses, in verse 4. So verses 1 and 4, this is how the blessings are truly enjoyed here. If you look at those again with me, and notice how similar they are. I'm going to read verse 1 and then read verse 4. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So you get that right now. You get repetition. It means the psalmist is really trying to tell us to listen up. There's something important going to be conveyed here. The key to enjoy the blessings begins with the fear of the Lord. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. The man shall be blessed who fears the Lord. So that's the key here. The key is fearing the Lord. A commentator says, it says, As we know from Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the soul of godliness. The fear of the Lord is the essence of true piety. Godly people fear God. Over 150 times the Bible tells us so. When it describes the essence of Job's godliness as he withstands massive onslaughts of pain, loss, and suffering, it says that he was a man who feared God. Strange, then, that this is a characteristic that is so very often missing from contemporary Christianity, the fear of the Lord. Because we want to enjoy the gifts. We want to enjoy the blessings. But we completely forget about the gift giver. And this is a grave mistake. First and foremost, we are to give God the reverence and the respect and the admiration that he demands and he deserves. And then once your heart is truly oriented and correctly oriented in that direction, then you can truly recognize what the blessings of work and family and worship truly are. But it begins with the fear of the Lord. All these other things are ancillary to that. And it's interesting that Psalm 127 ends with blessed is the man. but this. So if you go back last week, remember Psalm 127, the beginning of verse 5, blessed is the man who feels this quiver full of them talking about children. You know, blessed is the man. So Psalm 127 ends with blessed is the man. And then in Psalm 128 kind of continues on that thought. Because remember, these are sung back to back whenever they're singing them. Verses 1 through 4 show this. This attractive, almost idyllic picture of how a person who fears the Lord sees this, this epitome of blessedness in his home. First, first, he's able to enjoy the fruit of the labor of his hands. So he sees the work itself as a blessing, for idleness is a torture to virtuous people, You're sitting around doing nothing, your soul should be vexed. No mine is. And once the job is complete, the blessed man gets to relax and enjoy the fruits of his work. So thank God if you have a job and get to enjoy a paycheck that provides you with some sense of accomplishment and comfort. The next, this blessed man has a wife who is like a fruitful vine. So in the context of of Israel, the fruitful vine meant like, you know, a bringer of joy like wine or the mother of children. So thank God for your spouse. The blessed man does. I know I do. This blessed man also has children like olive shoots around the table. So olive shoots, they're, they're full of energy and they're, they're full of promise. And they're a source of nourishment. Children are like that. Energy, promise, source of nourishment. And we talked about this last week. But continue to praise God for the blessing of children. They are a blessing. And so now the blessed man, because he fears the Lord, he knows God's word. Moving on past, past the children, the olive shoe children. He knows God's word, and he knows that these things are not automatic, though. He works diligently. He loves his spouse well, and he faithfully trains his children in godliness. And the, that's how it works out. But the psalm, the psalm itself is kind of mo, focused on you know, the, the heavy pres- presence of divine blessings that surround such a family, a family that, that works diligently, and this man that loves his spouse well, and he faithfully trains his children in godliness, that's the way these things work out in practice. The psalm itself really more focuses on this kind of aura or this heavy presence of divine blessing that surrounds such a family that lives in the presence of God like that. So the man is blessed who enjoys the fruits of his labor, who loves his spouse, who has children that are full of promise and energy. And finally, this blessed man loves to worship God with God's people. That's how it ends in verses 5 and 6. The Lord bless you from Zion. Remember, that's the gathered assembly here. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. Again, the gathered assembly. The man loves to worship with God's people. All the days of your life. He looks towards building up the prosperity of the church too. He strives to live to a ripe old age of constant work, marriage, and service in the name of the Lord. And in the end, he wants to see his grandchildren prosper too. May you see your children's children. And in the end, he prays for peace or shalom or God's blessing again on God's people as a whole. Peace be upon Israel. He's concerned again with the corporate context of worship here. Peace be upon all of Israel, all of God's people. He prays for this. So this is God's design for moving his whole body towards a state of blessedness. Each individual member works hard, raises a family, and worships. And this is peace upon Israel. This is peace upon the church. This is the pattern. This is the pattern God established. This is the pattern for blessing. So let's sing this song together. Anybody need need a physical copy? Pretty good? Yeah? Okay. All right. Psalm 128. Because this is about blessing, we're going to sing it to the tune of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Lead us in, then we'll sing it.
1: So that
0: Blessings. Blessings to everyone. <laughs> Moving on to Psalm 129. We're going to get a big shift in emotion here. <laughs> we are. All right. Psalm 129. A song of sense. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. Let them be like grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So this is anti-blessings now. This is cursing, right? So I guess we couldn't make it through an entire series on a section of the Psalter without encountering at least one imprecatory psalm. So Dirk talked about these whenever, uh, two Sunday school series ago, I think it was your last lesson. You talked about the imprecatory Psalms, I think. So if you're, you're interested in, in going into, Dirk did a great job on that. And he, he develops the the thought a lot more than I'm going to. But uh, if you're interested, you can go back to that. That would have been, I don't know. Uh, that was back in May, something like that, I think. Yeah. April, May, something like that. So you can go, go look up those Sunday school lessons if you're interested. Um, but if you don't know what an imprecatory psalm is, it's a psalm that pronounces curses, basically. So we have a tendency to to love psalms like Psalm one twenty eight, like we just read, because if it's it's feel good, it's peppy nature um, makes us feel good. But and then you know we get to Psalm one twenty nine and we, uh, you know, or we cringe a little bit, or, or even worse, we can just completely avoid it. You just read right over it because they make us feel uncomfortable. But I'll, I'll give you an exhortation here: do not, invo- do not avoid passages of the Word of God that make you feel uncomfortable. If anything, you should put more focus there. <clears throat> you know, try ask yourself. You know, just ask yourself some of these questions: What is trying? What is God trying to communicate about His nature in a passage like this? Or what is He trying to communicate to us about our own nature in a passage like this? Or how does? Something like an imprecatory psalm fit into the whole arc of redemptive history. So in the context of when it was written and the whole arc of everything that God is trying to communicate to us about how he's trying to save us and everything about his son and about himself and about ourselves. How does this fit? Okay, so let's let's spend a few minutes here to see if we can we can unpack this one specifically. So, between 128 and 129, we really have a large spectrum of human emotions here, right? 128, you know, it's, it's upbeat, it's peppy, it's read like a toast when the men are all gathered around and they're celebrating something when their travels. And then you get to, you know, you get all this joy and pronouncement of blessings and then a prayer for peace at the end. And then immediately in their traveling psalm book, once again, remember, they're singing these back to back. The next psalm starts with a lament. In one through three. So you get this lament in one through three. They've afflicted me from my youth greatly. They have, have they afflicted me, but they've not prevailed against me. But then it goes on, to, they plowed upon my back, so they've beaten me with their stripes on my back. Their furrows are made long. So you got this lament. And then you get a, a very brief verse of praise in verse four. The Lord is righteous. He's cut off the cords of the wicked. So you get a verse of praise there. And then you get finally in verses five through eight, a, a curse. May those who hate Zion... May they be put to shame and turned backwards. Let them die and wither quickly. Let them not pass by and say, we pronounce blessings upon you, nor let those who pronounce blessings pass by on them and pronounce blessings upon them. So you have a curse in verses 5 through 8. And so the, the first thing I want you to notice here is that the use of the the singular pronouns here, so uh, especially in verses one and two, my and me and my, right there. These are these are not talking about the psalmist himself. Okay, these are per, these are personifying Israel as a corporate entity here. So it says, "Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth." Let Israel now say. So it's talking about the corporate entity of Israel here. It's not talking about the psalmist himself pronouncing vengeance here. Okay. So that's a very important thing. It's a very important thing. Because nowhere in the Old or New Testament is the taking of personal vengeance condoned. It's quite the opposite. Vengeance is of the Lord. We know that. You see this even throughout David, whenever Saul's oppressing David, David never seeks to take personal vengeance upon Saul. He's waiting on the Lord to do these things. But at the same time, there is a distinct pattern in the Old Testament and the New Testament that does allow for the pronouncement of curses upon who upon those who oppose the people of God as a whole. Okay? So that's that's kind of the point here in verses one and two, the way it starts out the Psalm. And then in verse 5, too, may all those who hate Zion, not all those who hate me personally, may all those who hate Zion, the corporate entity, God's people as a whole. That's where the curses get pronounced. So there are many examples in the Old Testament of this, the pronouncement of of curses. Um, But there's also many examples in the New Testament. Jesus curses the Jewish leaders that opposed his work quite a few times. He does. Paul curses Alexander the coppersmith. In second Timothy chapter four, he says, Let the Lord repay him for his deeds. Let the Lord repay him. That's a that's a curse. It's not like, you know, let him be like grass and wither upon housetops curse, but let the Lord repay him is indeed a curse. And then even more explicitly, Paul says in First Corinthians chapter sixteen, it says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So, I mean, if you're cursed from the Lord, there's no higher curse that can be pronounced, right? So if anyone does not have love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So there's examples of this, both in the Old and New Testament, of, of people pronouncing curses upon people who oppose God's people as a whole. And even more, this this one's a bit more subtle, but what about the portion of the model or the Lord's Prayer that I assume we're covering today in the worship service. I haven't looked at the order of worship today, so I don't know. But the next portion, we covered Hallowed Be Thy Name last week. So I assume Pastor Thomas is going to Let Thy Kingdom Come this week. So think about that for a second. Like I said, this one's a bit more subtle. When you're praying for God's kingdom to come, consider what that means. We're praying for Jesus to return and inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. If you ever read the book of Revelation, you know that when Jesus returns, he's returning, he's coming back with the winnowing fork in his hand, and he's coming back in judgment. It's very clear there. And he's coming back in judgment with the full the pure righteous wrath of God. So, that's a bit more subtle, but when you pray for God's kingdom to come, You're praying for Jesus to come back and issue his pronouncement of judgment upon the world. It's, in a a way, a curse. But you just don't make the the curses personal. That's the point here. It's never personal vengeance or anything like that. It's all God's judgment according to his glory and his time. So don't shy away from them. You can pray them, just don't make them personal. And that's, that's exactly what, what this psalm is doing here. The people of God have been greatly afflicted. Those seeking to destroy God's people had beaten the backs of the people constantly. This is all throughout Israel. A lot of times this was Israel's own fault, but a lot of times it wasn't. You, know, you think about the many times that they're attacked by either Egypt or the Philistines or the Moabites or the Edomites or the Ammonites or anyone else, you know, or Assyria or Babylon. They have been constantly beaten by people who are opposed to God's people. But they had not prevailed. None of these people had prevailed ultimately. So then the curse is pronounced. But notice the central verse of the psalm, verse 4. Verse 4 is the foundation of why the enemies had not prevailed, and it's also the foundation of why it is not wrong to pronounce a curse upon the enemies of Israel. What does it say there? The Lord is righteous. That is why both of these things are okay. Nothing else said in this psalm can be defended like I've just done. I've walked through all of this defense of these curses, but none of that can be defended if verse 4 is not true. If the Lord is not righteous, none of that else, nothing else matters. He's just as capricious as every other made-up God that's throughout the history of the world. You know, a lot of those gods were vengeance for personal, vengeance for personal reasons. You know, they were petty. They were capricious in where they pronounced vengeance. God is not like that. God is righteous. He's pure. And that's, that's the hinge here. It's what all this, nothing else matters if God is not righteous. His righteousness is why Israel survived the onslaughts of her enemies. And it's also why she hasn't been abandoned because of her own wickedness. His righteousness is why Israel's enemies are to be cursed. His righteousness is why the enemies of the church are to be cursed. Because he can do no wrong. He will defend his holy name and uphold his honor. He will glorify himself. And in doing so, he cannot let his people be destroyed. Indeed, the Lord is righteous. So finally here, consider with me today the place where God's righteousness And his curses met most significantly. You know where I'm going with this. This is at Calvary. This is where a cursed man hung on a tree. It's where plowers plowed upon the back of Jesus, the stripes that we deserve for our sins. This is where no one would walk by and say, like this psalm says, we bless you in the name of the Lord. No one would walk by the cross and say, we bless you in the name of the Lord. No, it was the exact opposite of that. It was on that hill where the Father said, I curse you. This is where the imprecatory Psalms reach their most full fulfillment in the curses that are pronounced upon Jesus. God says, even though you are righteous, I curse you. That curse was for you. Curse was for me. But instead of the curse, we get to enjoy the righteousness of Christ. That's what the gospel is. That's our hope. We get to enjoy the righteousness of Christ, even though we deserve to be cursed like the enemies of God, because we were, but we're not anymore. So let that be on your mind as we go and sing this this very somber song. This is a very somber one. The last one was upbeat and there's blessings everywhere. This one's somber. So we're going to sing this one to the God who has borne the curse on our behalf. And this one's going to be a little bit different. And it might even seem a bit awkward at first. But I think it actually works out really well after playing through this one a few times. So we're going to sing it to the tune of How Great Thou Art. But we're singing it without the refrain. So the chorus of How Great Thou Art. So you might, need, you might have a tendency to want to go to, Then sings my soul. But don't. Because <laughs> it's not, one of the reasons why it doesn't fit with the meter. Okay, and we did, I don't have any other options. I think this is a, I don't remember what it is, an 11-10, 11-10, is that written there? 11-10, 11-10, and there's no other songs that we have that have that meter with, with a refrain or without a refrain or anything like that. So I thought this fit really well. And the other thing, it's going to feel like, because we're so used to singing the refrain here, it's going to feel like it doesn't have any resolution at the end. But if you think about the way this psalm is written, the psalm is kind of written to where it doesn't really have a whole lot of resolution at the end either, so it kind of fits with the whole theme. Um, but anyway, stick with it, don't go into the refrain, but you all, you all know the tune, Okay.
1: Like grass upon